And tonight's going to be such a wonderful, intimate conversation that I think we can all engage with or without microphones. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine Favell and I look after com the community outreach programs here at the National Library. And as I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we're all now privileged to call home. Our conversation tonight, of course, forms part of our public programming with, for the Celestial Empire exhibition. Celestial Empire and its public programs would not be possible without the support of a tremendous group of partners. And if you have been coming to events, you will have heard these thank yous before. But please bear with me as I go through them once again, because we really couldn't have uh, put on Celestial Empire or had the monkey out the front or run events like tonight without the extraordinary group who've joined us. So first and foremost, I'd like to thank the National Library of China for sharing its exceptional collection with us. Tonight, the gallery's open till 8pm, so if you haven't had the chance to see Celestial Empire, now is your chance to pop in after we've had our conversation. I thank our partners, Shell in Australia, Seven Network, Wanda One Proprietary Limited, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels, and our event partners, the ANU Centre for China in the World and Asia Society Australia for their generosity. I thank our government partners, the Australian Government for supporting the, for its support through the National Collecting Institution's Turing Outreach Program, and the Australia China Council, and the ACT Government through Visit Canberra. And by the end of this exhibition on 22 May, I reckon I might just have memorised all of that and be able to get through it without stumbling. I'm getting there slowly. Tonight's a little bit of a special night for me. I was mentioning to Yang that um, 20 years ago, I was the literary editor for News Magazine. Some of you will remember News Magazine. It was in the days before um, email, and every month a little package of letters would arrive in the mail with some poems, and every month I would sit there looking at all the submissions that came in and wonder if anyone would notice if I published one of Yang's poems yet again. Um, you know, even then you had to be fair and mix it up a little bit. Um, but I have watched with great interest ever since, although tonight's the first night we've met, um, how his writing career has developed. And now he is the author. He's published 77 books, which seems something of a miracle, in both English and Chinese, in the fields of fiction, non-fiction, poetry, literary translation and literary criticism. He's won two New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, First in 1999 for his book of poetry, Songs of the Last Chinese Poet, and then in 2011 for his novel, The English Class. Somewhat epically, he translated into Chinese Robert Hughes' The Fatal Shore and won a translation award for that work in 2014. He co-founded Australia's first Chinese language literary journal, Otherland, and he's now Professor of English at the Shanghai University of International Business and Economics, and I'm going to claim that all of that was possible because of News Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight, Yang is in conversation with our own Melinda Smith, who's poetry editor for the Canberra Times. She's also the recipient of the Prime Minister's Award for Literature, and you probably could have heard all of Canberra cheering in 2014 when that award was announced. And she's an ANU University medalist and honours graduate of the ANU's Faculty of Asian Studies. Please welcome Yang and Melinda. introduction, Catherine. Um, thank you everyone for coming. Um, it's a lovely kind of full crowd. I'm looking forward to a fascinating conversation with a fascinating piece of Australian poetry and literary history <laughs> and future. <laughs> it's not like you're done yet. So um, as people would have heard in the introduction, you've, you've um, been publishing in both languages for a very long time born in China and came to Australia as uh, kind of in your 30s. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about how you came to choose Australia as a place to come to? Yes, uh, thank you Melinda and uh, thank you for coming here. I actually assume that today probably I only had one or two audience. I was overwhelmed with so many. <laughs> 
in fact, I uh, once uh, I remember, I had uh, a talk at uh, UTS. No, I think the one, <laughs> my worst record. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about Australian literature. <coughs> when I uh, received a fax from China advising that uh, I was invited to an interview at uh, East, East China Normal University in 1986. I was in Canada. I was uh, <coughs> uh, the head interpreter for a group of uh, Chinese experts working on the Yangtze uh, Dam mm -hmm. because it was being planned. And we were collaborating with uh, a Canadian uh, uh, agency called CEDA, C-E-D-A. I was unsure whether I should go or not mm -hmm. because uh, the first year when I went for it in Guangzhou, I didn't pass it. Mm -hmm. I didn't pass the interview. I passed the written examination, but uh, I was rejected in the oral interview. Yeah. Well, that story later because there's a lot of uh, interesting things about that one. But uh, the second one, I went for Shanghai and passed the written uh, examination again and received the facts for uh, that. Actually, it's not the facts. So facts uh, wasn't even available then in 1986. Mm. It was, uh, what is that, tele telegram or something like that. Uh -huh. Telegraph, yeah, telegraph, yeah. yeah. Liters of telegraph I, uh, I sent to Australia afterwards. <coughs> but anyway, I decided to go. And I didn't actually uh, go for Australian studies. Mm -hmm. I went for the <coughs> English literature, British literature. But uh, the professor came along and said, uh, unfortunately, uh, the professor you went for had fallen ill and could not take any more program. Would you be interested in what I do? I said, what did you do? He said, Australian literature. I said, oh, I've never heard about is it. Is that a thing uh, even? I've never heard yeah. about <laughs> it. Is there, is there literature? Yeah. It's worth pursuing, <laughs> you know? And then he just took an hour, you know, to fill me in on what uh, was there. And I came away and thought about it and eventually I thought it was a good opportunity. I decided to go from there. Right. Yeah, that's how it was started. Mm. Yeah, that's totally that's ignorant. Except, of course, I had read uh, a number of short stories translated into Chinese by Patrick White. Ah. Yeah, well, his fame traveled uh, far to China, into the Chinese, into language. Chinese language. Yeah. I had no idea that it, it was such a line ball thing between English literature and Australian literature. That's right, that that yeah. Uh, or because somebody was sick, but that's an, an amazing uh, thing. Yeah, because yeah. you had, before you go to uh, uh, any subjects, you have to uh, decide which professor or specialist you, you want to go, yeah. uh, go with. And that's how it happened. That's fascinating. And so, in the end, you ended up doing your master's at Shanghai and then coming to La Trobe That's in Melbourne right. to do your PhD yes. on representations of Chinese in Australian literature. Yes, and uh, I, uh, by the way, when I uh, chose uh, uh, the writer to write about, uh, out of all the writers, I chose Christina Stead, ah. focusing on the man who loved, loved children. children. Yeah. Because we, we did have, uh, you know, uh, rows and rows of uh, Australian books but I sort of bypassed all, and I just happened to read the book, and I thought that was really outstanding. So I chose to do it. And 10 years after, I uh, translated that uh, book into Chinese as well. Yeah, because that's the one that stays in my mind, and I thought that needs to be, you know, uh, introduced to the Chinese, or, uh, Chinese readership. That's and, and what kind of response have you had with your translations of Australian classics into China? Because, well, let's first ask about The Man Who Loved Children. How yes. was that received? The Man Who Loved Children was uh, uh, published, the first edition mm -hmm. was published in 1999 in Beijing. And uh, the launch was done uh, at the Australian Embassy in Beijing. was really a big one. Mm. And uh, 
the embassy was saying to me, you could invite your friends to come. So I invited uh, quite a number of uh, Chinese poets to present at the uh, um, launch. And I remember, still remember one remark made by a woman audience member. She said, who is this uh, writer? Is she famous? <laughs> I was really <laughs> embarrassed by that. Well, you know, that's a fair enough question. Yeah. If yeah, the yeah. answer. Yeah, she's very famous, except that you do not. You have never heard of her. Yeah. But here's <laughs> the opportunity for <laughs> you to read her. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. So, I mean, I'm y as well as um, the man who loved children into Chinese, you've also translated um, fiction and nonfiction. You've done both the female eunuch and the whole woman, and you've done um, two books by Robert Hughes, one of which was the Fatal Shore that that won the translation prize. You've also done things like Capricornia and Tyrolea by the River, That Eye, The Sky, um, and uh, you had a book one for David Maloof that you had. Oh, oh, oh Flyaway Peter. Flyaway Peter, yeah. yeah. So, um, and that's over the course of, of um, many years of effort, of course. I, I just wanted to ask, how do you choose which books to translate? Is it a a totally a kind of labour of love or do you have a, a publisher that you work with regularly who tells you what they do and do not want to see in yeah, Chinese? Interesting question. I started, uh, when I was uh, a postgrad, I uh, grew interested in quite a number of uh, Australian books and uh, I had to do things by stealth to be, you know, uh, honest because I think, uh, I, I, I wouldn't mention names, I think uh, some of the more precious books, Australian books, were not made uh, generally available mm. in the Australian Studies Centre there, but they were kept as, as part of the private collection mm -hmm. in the professor's house, which meant you have to, of course, the professors will lend the books to you, mm. but we had to... Well, I did this. I basically, I just uh, photocopy of uh, the two books, that is Flower Peter, and yeah. uh, what's the second one is the Tuolua by the River. Oh, yeah. These were the two I really liked. So I just made photo uh, photocopies of them, returned them within the limit of two weeks, and then I translated them while I was still working on my uh, MA thesis. Oh, Lord. And, and those two manuscripts were done without any hope of submitting or getting published. So they were done entirely out of pleasure mm. because I enjoyed doing them. I, I, I really liked the books. And later on, uh, when I came to Australia, I came to Australia in 1991. So in 1994, a new uh, committee was formed to introduce a series of Australian, classic Australian uh, novels into Chinese oh. in translation. That's how I approached them and said, could I, you know, submit some manuscripts? And that's how, uh, I, I was in uh, Australia and my dad was still alive back then. Mm -hmm. I wrote letters to him and he, you know, uh, sent the manuscripts from China. I still kept the uh, Chrismungling of those things. Everything was done by hand. Mm. And uh, one page, uh, one piece of paper on both sides filled with characters. Yeah. All that. Amazing. Yeah. So but later yeah. on, things have changed drastically. I mm. uh, don't know from when, but um, maybe beginning uh, in the, I don't know, the 2000, after 2000, when people approached me and uh, wondered if you would like to translate this or that and that. And that's how I never had to really approach uh, the publishers. But before that, I had to do a lot of hard work for about 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Until you suddenly became the go-to guy. <coughs> not necessarily. I hope, yeah. I hope so. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's just uh, yeah, changed the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. No, not with writings, though, with translations. Writings are still hard, very hard, yeah. Um, 
talking a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of yeah, translation yeah, yeah. now. Yes, please. Um, because you've done so much of it in both directions. Mm. Firstly, is there one direction, Chinese to English or English to Chinese, that you find more difficult? Not necessarily. I think uh, both ways, uh, 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 if translated into Chinese, uh, has its own problems and challenges, and uh, uh, similarly into English, the same. Mm -hmm. uh, both, uh, but they're different. It's, it's, it's diff very different. And you talked about, you asked me about direct translation. Yes. Uh, this is what I uh, thought as soon as I went into the exhibition downstairs. Yes. Because I immediately noticed that certain things could be were directly translated. For example, the very first thing is, I'm not sure what that is translated into, but it's, uh, it seems to be a time of rule or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I had a look at the Chinese, it's, it's actually zi, which literally or directly can be translated as sacred governance. Mm. Because sim meaning sacred. And governance is zi. And the other thing is Chen, uh, which is translated as uh, a rumbling world. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But literally, it is red dust. Red dust is much, I think, yeah, much, much more evocative. better, yeah, much yeah. more evocative. And mm. in fact, mm. uh, one Chinese writer by the name of Ma Jian, mm -hmm. he's now based in London, and some of you may have read his work. <coughs> he had uh, uh, an early book of nonfiction that is titled exactly Red Dust in Chinese Hongcheng. Directed translation, yeah. you know. And then there's another one. Uh, I forgot the, the English uh, translation uh, here in the exhibition. But in Chinese, it's called Wenfeng. Wenfeng can be <coughs> indirectly translated as literary style. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's not style. Feng means wind. Mm. It's a wind of lit literature or literary wind. It's beautiful, like poetic wind, yeah. literary wind. Whatever that is like a wind that goes past, you know, it's just so, it's all in the word. It's all in the word. It's all in the word. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have been quoted as saying, you know, direct translation is, po is poetry. It's poetry. That's what yeah. I realized when, when I was uh, in my uh, mid-40s. You know, it's not something that I realized when I was young, but as you grow older and as you practice more, you realize something that is so simple that is hidden in the language itself. And that's that kind of direct translation is a tactic that you've spoken about actually employing um, when you translate poetry and also, I think, in fiction sometimes. Yes, uh, in nonfiction, for example, when you mentioned um, uh, the Fatal Shore mm -hmm. that I translated, I immediately remember there is uh, quite a number of instances in which I, I, do, I did uh, direct translation. For example, there's a tree called Black Boy Tree. How can you circle around that by rendering uh, it more lyrical? It's just Black Boy, Boy Tree, tree yeah. which you can't find in any uh, existing dictionaries. Mm -hmm. There's no uh, matching definition, but you can just do it. Mm. Black boy tree. And that's, that's one instance. And the other one is uh, uh, a, a kind of a variety of gum known as scribbly gum. Oh, yes. Oh, that's so difficult because there's nothing in the dictionaries that you can find and match. Mm. And I uh, had uh, an idea of turning into because in Chinese calligraphy, there is a kind, ca kind of calligraphy that is known as chao shu, meaning glass, glass style, yeah. glass ah, yeah. calligraphy, because you write so, uh, so, so in such a scribbly way that it resembles the wild grass. So I use that. I call that chao shu an, meaning a scribbly gum in Chinese. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So and that yeah. is also a kind of direct translation, and. Take one more example. Mm. When I translated the Chinese poet into English, he talked about his palm. He talked about his palm, but palm is boring because in Chinese, it's literally known as if this part 
of the hand you're talking about is you talk about hand heart. My mother placed something in the heart of my hand. That's beautiful beyond description. But if you say my mother placed uh, something on my palm, well, that's just on my palm. But in Chinese, there's that hand heart. So it opens up a whole other resonance. Exactly, and that is a direct translation in itself. Now, you have actually also done um, a translation job on your own words. You wrote, uh, since arriving mm-hmm. in Australia, you've, you've been continued writing poems in Chinese for your own um, record and for your own pleasure. And then um, in 2012 or 2013, you brought out a book called Self-Translation, where mm. you actually um, provided them all on the left-hand page in Chinese and then translated them into yeah. English on yeah. the right-hand page. So can you tell us a bit about what it was like to try and translate yourself and how that differs from translating yeah. another writer? That history, that's a, there's a long history of that. Uh, that's now uh, over 20 or nearly 30 years. Mm. Uh, since I came to Australia, I started writing uh, poetry in English. And of course, I had been writing in Chinese all along. And then suddenly I realized that certain poems that I wrote in Chinese, I could turn them into English. But my experience was a failure, basically, because what I did in the early days was, uh, in terms of uh, ascription, I would say, written in Chinese by Ouyang Yu and then translated uh, into English by Ouyang Yu. Then everything was rejected. Until I thought, why should I have to bother, you know, with that? I can simply just read by Ouyang Yu. Yes. Just by Ouyang Yu. This is the, yeah. So it's almost like, uh, you know, I did did, um, a PPT talk about this, and uh, someone at Monash University got very interested in the idea and uh, got me to uh, give another talk there. And I said uh, in the early days there was really shame associated with this business. What do you want to do? Because people seem to have uh, to regard this as uh, not right, surreptitious, you know. What is that? If you're good enough, you know, Mm. people will pay attention to your work. They will come along and offer to translate you into another language. This must (laughs) mean that you you are not really good enough, yeah. and you have to do, do it, it yourself. yourself. You see, there's that shame there. Mm. And I, I, I bought that shame for 20 odd years until eventually I said, okay, it's not good enough, but I commit to doing it myself, yeah. you know? And, and of course, it's out of an experience in which it, you compare the words that other people translated of other people, and you realize that when you were still alive, you could translate you. And when you are dead, then it's open oh. for anyone to enter into your work. Okay. Now it's, it's time you play with yourself yeah. or you translate yourself. I, I, had, I must confess I had never realized that that was an angle from which those A translations could be A big shame with me, with me. Big shame, That's big shame. incredible. Yes. Yeah. Bearing Whereas, the yeah. bones so long, you know, yeah. it's very, very hard, yeah. But the, I mean, the book itself has has had a, a, a good critical reaction. I think That's had <laughs> Michael yeah. Farrell in the Australian absolutely loved it, and um, <laughs> lots of other people have um, said that it's a favourite book of mine. In fact, um, Subhash Dairest, who can't be here tonight, he's a, an academic and translator uh, at the I University of Canberra. Yeah. He said you must him. ask him, make him talk about self-translation. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a bit of a sleeper hit, if mm. you know what I mean. Mm. That book. Yeah. So maybe those poems are finally getting the justice they deserve after being um, frowned on for so long. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've kind of talked a lot about your work as a translator. Um, I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about your fiction and poetry writing and your, your own creative output um, yeah. for yourself. Um, and as um, Catherine said at the beginning, um, Ouyang Yu's a prize-winning novelist and a prize-winning poet, which is an incredible... Um, Quinella to pull off in any language and um, his novels 
of which he's written more than two, but I, I suppose I want to talk about the, the two more recent ones, The English Class and um, Diary of a Naked Official. Mm -hmm. At, and both of those are very, very different novels, but mm. um, both of them have a kind of long section at the end where you talk about works cited or works considered. Right, and yeah. uh, there's works in English and works in Chinese, and it's mm. quite a, a diverse collection. There's, mm. you know, kind of there's fiction in there, but there's also historical documents and um, statistical um, compilations and all sorts of things mm. that he cited there. So I was just wanted to kind of um, step back and ask you, when you were writing those novels, were you thinking of them as having a conversation with other novels in English or with novels that had been written in Chinese, or were you thinking of them doing something else entirely? Yeah, uh, I think there was a movement uh, uh, in my writing. Um, from the first novel I got published in 2003, which uh, is uh, Eastern Slope Chronicle. And in fact, that novel was finished as early in as early as 1998, but it took a long time to uh, get it printed and published. By the way, every uh, book of mine suffers multiple rejections. Multiple, absolutely. Uh, the first novel was uh, rejected everywhere in the world. Uh, I, I, I did. Uh, when it was finally published, I did a list of uh, uh, rejectors. <laughs> 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 yeah. And uh, in number twenty eight, yeah, right, yeah. That's that's the thing. And the second one was, in fact, the English class was the third, but it was uh, published before oh the okay. second one, which is Lewis a Wild History. Oh. Yeah, and that was rejected by everyone too. And uh, I, I still remember uh, when I was at uh, New South Wales uh, Premier's uh, Literary Award when I was, uh, I gave a, a, a speech. And I said, uh, it's always like uh, when you are actually beat down to the bottom, to hit the absolute rock bottom, mm. then there's hope of getting down because you just there's no you way can't go, down to yeah, go. Yeah. any further. Yeah, it's always like that. But uh, the the movement I want to talk to talk about was that uh, in the early days, uh, like uh, the Eastern Snow Chronicle, um, it's all in my head. I just wrote it out mm -hmm. like an outburst of material and uh, uh, inspiration and experience. As it moved further along the line, I found that uh, I uh, there was per things personal, mm -hmm. there was there were things historical and uh, book related. I had to do much more research. Uh, this shows. You know, um, at the end of at that end book, of book, yeah, mm. and the, the the two books, yeah, I had to do a lot of digging mm. uh, into history, into other books, uh, by reference to uh, many other things. Mm. Yeah, that's what I did. But it, I mean, it's quite obvious reading those books that they are um, they're really quite deeply rooted in all of those other sources, and they're trying to synthesize um, what you've dug up. I that's suppose. right. Traditions, yeah. cultures. Uh, not just one, but two, but two. and uh, yeah, that's that's what. It, and and of course, uh, when it comes to uh, diary of a naked official, uh, it has reference to Japanese books as well, but translated into, into Chinese, Chinese that I have read. So the ideas have come on a threefold journey by the time you get into a book written in English. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, thinking now uh, um, about your fiction and about your poetry. Mm. Uh, I suppose that kind of dovetails into the next question I wanted to ask. There are some places in your work where um, it's obvious that the reader will have a richer experience if they understand both Chinese and English. Mm. There are puns and jokes that play off differences of viewing things in Chinese and English or, or just different ways of expressing things. Mm. Um, in fact, I'll read a little example from one of um, Uyang's poems that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a poem called um, Translation Half or Complete, and I've just picked out a few lines. And it actually is comparing um, English and Chinese expressions. English, by comparison, seems reticent, or by our logic, half cooked. 
for when we describe a damning situation as hot fire and deep water, they are content enough to admit the deep waters. Similarly, a sea change is only partly what a sea and mulberry field change means, if it really means anything. Most of the times when shadows are caught in one, wind is lost in another. And you know, reading those lines, it's obvious that if you understand the Chinese expressions that you're bouncing off, um, you get a much richer experience of the poem. Would, can I be a bit controversial and propose that perhaps your truest and best audience is a bilingual audience, of whom there are bazillions in the world, of course? Yeah, no, it's a very good, uh, uh, interesting thing uh, you mentioned about uh, the audience being bilingual. I think it's open. It's open to uh, both the bilingual and the monolingual because even with the monolingual one, part part of it that is left uh, unexplained, unexplained and hidden will be left for these people to keep digging into and come up with other things. And this is exactly what happened with uh, book reviews, uh, little essays or uh, academic uh, uh, papers uh, that I have found on my writings because sometimes uh, the meanings is stretched mm -hmm. beyond the limit. Sometimes I think, oh, it's not really what I meant, but what does it matter? Because once the text is born, it's just open to any amount, any sort of interpretation some people are uh, as far as in uh, South America. Mm, mm. So how can you help? Yep. You, can't, you can't email each person and say, that is not right. So fine. Yeah, as long as uh, you know, um, it leads to more imagina imaginary, uh, imaginative uh, things pr being produced, it's fine. fine. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, certainly, I'm I'm not fluent in Chinese at all. Doesn't as matter a, as at all. a mono, well, not a monolingual writer, uh, but a, as a reader who only can read the English dimension of what you create, that poem is really evocative and makes me want to go and look up the Chinese expressions. Yeah, so and I, I think it, yeah, it is having the effect that you described of um, making people go looking. Yeah, and, and sometimes the they might find something that you didn't intend them to find, but that's yeah. That's right. And the other thing, I guess, is also. Um, Personally, uh, it, it's having to do with your own character. For example, what I find a bit uh, irritating is on WeChat, we talked about WeChat, which is a social media that combines uh, FB, Twitter, and all sorts of other uh, Instagrams mm -hmm. in, in the Chinese-speaking world. Everyone's using it. Um, I find when people po uh, uh, post their stuff on it, mm -hmm. they explain a lot. Whereas they notice something I do, I always put things there without any explanation. I'm not into explaining because pictures are there. Mm. They are telling you what's going on. And why bother explaining? Yeah. And same with poetry. The best if you leave it to unexplained. Just leave it to stand by yeah, itself. Just stand by itself. And you can explain any way you want to. And there's, there's no mistakes. Yeah, anything is good. Even today when I, uh, I have a, th a theory about mistakes because I think mistakes are creative. Mm. They lead to new things uh, uh, being produced and happen new happenings. And this is why I always encourage my students to make mistakes, mm. create creative mistakes in their writing. Reminds me, I think I read an interview with you where you had misread something that the poet Dana Joya had written. Yeah, that's right, and yes. But, but the your misreading was far better than the original, or not, far more amusing and interesting than the original poem. Yeah. I can't now remember what that's around. No, it's uh, actually, I was reading a book by him mm. where he says, in, in one of the poems, he says, he feel the pain, I feel the pain. I thought, oh, that's a great line. Mm. Because he said, I feel the pain. I feel the pain. <laughs> then on second reading, I thought, oh, I was disappointed. <laughs> I feel the pain. <laughs> but then I, it, it occurred to me I could write that down yeah, as a poem. Yeah. So it became a poem. 
I peeled the pain. Peeled the pain. I love that I peeled the pain, but yeah. but was born out of a out mistake. Of a mistake. Yeah, and ever afterwards, many of the poems I wrote were based on mistakes. They take you to heights, unexpected heights, really great stuff. You know, you, you never know. Yeah, creative destruction. But yeah, but because you know we, from childhood in China, mm. particularly, you are always corrected. Nothing you do seems to be right, mm. until you realize everything wrong. So seeing the value in mistakes can be right. Yeah, can be right. It's yeah, a kind of radical right. position to take, really. Yeah, when you've grown up in that context. In particular, yeah. yeah. Oh, so much great stuff here. I'm just hoping that we can get through all the rest that we want to talk about. Um, so I'd like to ask you a little bit about your creative process um, as a fiction writer and as a poet. Um, you have said that your your poetry brain is going in the background all the time when you're, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're giving a lecture, um, when you're driving the car. It's going pretty much all the time. Do you find that happens with your fiction or does your fiction come to you in a different way? I recently gave a talk at uh, Fudan University in Shanghai and uh, I mainly talked about poetry. I made uh, an analogy of poetry being uh, a process of lovemaking in which uh, you take from step one right to the end till you, you ejaculate. So the poetry, the writing of poetry is, you know, it's, it's very much like that. It's like ejaculation. And then uh, one in the audience posed the question, what is the writing of a novel is like? <laughs> I don't think I made the good answer, but <laughs> ever afterward I keep thinking, what is what that is like? And, and eventually I came up with an answer about uh, writing of uh, a novel. It's, it's like uh, running a marathon. Mm. It's just like running a marathon. Because for me, a typical novel uh, takes about three to four years. So you keep going at it on a daily basis yeah. without even knowing if all this effort is wasted, yeah. you know. You spend four years doing something, then it gets rejected. <laughs> What's the point? Right. You know, right. poetry yeah. is much better. Yeah. You know, it's so pleasurable. It comes out, and that's it. One of the good... <laughs> It may be one <laughs> of the best things, yeah. But but uh, why uh, why do you want to write a novel? Yeah, that's that's something I that hit me. Uh, As a poet, I can only second your characterization <laughs> of the two forms, and that's uh, I haven't yet written a novel because I don't think I have a marathon <laughs> in me. Um, so, um, kind of rounding off this um, chat about your creative output. Um, Timothy, you have had a look particularly at the, the poems in self-translation, um, but also other parts of, of what you've created. And you've said um, that your Chinese poems in the Chinese language had a surprising lyricism, and he contrasted that with your acid English puns. Oh, right. <laughs> would you say that was a fair comment, or would you say that he needs to look deeper? Maybe my Chinese tongue is also acid, except <laughs> that he, uh, I, I don't know <laughs> how, how good his Chinese is, yeah, you know. And, and by the way, I, uh, oh, well, I'm forgetting. No, no, no. Yeah, okay. No, I, I, I translated one uh, poem from uh, uh, English into Chinese, so it's also uh, self-translation, but uh, I think the practice in China is that uh, it, was, it was accepted and was uh, oh. quite well liked uh, online. But they never ever mentioned the fact that yeah. this was originally written in Chinese and later self-translated, <laughs> and the, and the pumpkin factor was I actually read a translation of that poem by someone I do not know, oh. but I was very unhappy about it, so, so I decided yeah, yeah then and there to translate it myself into uh, Chinese. Which is also, you know, shows that this is uh, really um, worthwhile if the translator is still alive. You know, yeah. better translate your own work than allowing it to be savaged by so someone else. By somebody <laughs> else later on. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I thought. So uh, that's really interesting. So the in the presentation of that work in China, the fact that it was a translation from an English original 
was again, yeah, that are, that much don't attention care. either to they don't care, care or is it the same kind of idea that you had here where if the person had to do it themselves, it can't be that good? I, I, I think these are just, they can't be bothered with yeah. that fact. Yeah. It's not important. In the end, we have yeah. a text we can yeah, read. Yeah, we have the text, the text that we all yeah. can enjoy and accept. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the most important thing. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit now about Otherland, the journal that you founded yeah. here in Australia for um, Chinese-Australian writing, or actually just Chinese writing from anywhere. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you why, you how that came about, why you decided to do it and how that came about. Yeah, I was uh, in 1994 uh, when uh, a number of our uh, friends gathered together and uh, we wanted to do uh, a magazine, a literary magazine, and that's how we started. And then the three of us started to produce the first issue, and then the other two decided to leave. So I was the only one to carry it on. And uh, by 2000, I decided to go bilingual with one issue in Chinese, the other issue in English, because by then I had realized that uh, the the Chinese community, uh, people here, they were too busy. Mm -hmm. Muslim communities, very busy, couldn't afford time to uh, read it. And I had to open up to the general community in Australia, the English-speaking community, that's how. Okay. And so I moved between these two uh, uh, versions. And is Otherland still? Um, still, yeah, still, yeah, still uh, alive, yeah. still going, yeah. yeah. Um, and that, I suppose, that work of um, assembling the Chinese poets for other land, did that feed then into your work um, producing books of translation of Chinese poetry into English? Or yeah. did you do a separate kind of selection exercise or did they cross-pollinate slowly? No, again, that had yeah. to do uh, with uh, the non-acceptance of Chinese poetry in English translation. Uh, I did. I actually um, did a book of uh, Chinese complete Chinese poetry in English translation, and I submitted again everywhere mm -hmm. here and New Zealand, all not Nothing. bad, until I decided to do an issue entirely uh, devoted to the publication of that, oh. and I, d I I did that in 2002, and never thought or could imagine what hap what would happen afterwards because what happened afterwards was amazing. Someone wrote from Denmark because she heard about the, uh, the uh, Chinese issue, translation issue, mm -hmm. she heard about it and she <coughs> decided to buy a copy from Denmark and that copy became an opportunity for her to apply to the Danish Culture Council for 400,000 uh, Danish uh, kroner. And with that money, she uh, did the Chinese uh, uh, poetry festival in 2004. All of that you never happened. You never know yeah. that could happen, but yeah. that was because of that. But someone in Denmark, just so amazing, yeah. you know, okay. not here. Yeah. Um, should have been here. I should have been here. Should have been much better, <laughs> you know, so easy, you know. They didn't have to spend all the money inviting me there, flying <laughs> me there. That's a big savings. It could happen here. Yeah. There's so much more I want to ask you, but I'm aware of the time. Just going to kind of finish off, um, I suppose we're all here because of the Celestial Empire yeah. exhibition. Um, and as someone who understands China both as an insider and as someone who can take the perspective of an outsider on China. Um, do you have a, a kind of a double reaction to the exhibition in any way? Do you find yourself looking at it as someone who, who has that history but also someone who can stand outside that history? Yeah, no, uh, this uh, uh, brings uh, a personal perspective uh, to the exhibition. I uh, love the, uh, the presentation and all the material presented. And then also, when I uh, look at that, I thought of things that happened to me in relation to uh, the Qing dynasty. Uh, for example, I had uh, an artist friend um, in the 80s in Shanghai. 
the only thing that he was passionate about was the chin, mm. the chin material, the chin core. So his, uh, his oil paintings were all about the chin court, emperors, uh, concubines, and he ended up uh, uh, in New York and died a few years after he migrated to New York. But he's one of uh, the artists uh, who um, had connections with Chin. He never painted anything about contemporary reality. Yeah. And, and, and he was uh, from uh, the Manchu background. Oh, okay. And the other thing is with myself, I read, I read a lot of Qin Chiqi written in Chinese. Two things stand out. One is, uh, is uh, their portrait of the white people, white visitors to China in the early days, the represent literary representations of the Westerners to put it this way. <laughs> the red hair it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great. And if you look at the terms they use to describe uh, uh, the English language, just one example of uh, direct translation is called Hong Mao Hua, which means red-haired speech. English is the red-haired okay. speech. That's no longer in existence, but how vivid that is when they first, you know, saw them come in, it's all red-haired, and the red-haired people speaking that, so it's red-haired mm. speech. The other thing is, um, much of the fiction that was written in the, uh, in the Shanghai, or greater Shanghai area, was uh, um, based on the local speech, so on the dialect, mm -hmm. which is beautiful, you know, it's, it's, it has color and has taste. Now everything is Mandarin, it's like the um, uh, received uh, received the speech in in, uh, in the UK. Pronunciation received yes, pronunciation uh, that yes. irons out the differences yeah. in accents. Yeah, but but in the early days that was there in the Qin fiction. Interesting. Yeah, and it's all recorded like a tape recorder, recorded in language, and it was just beautiful. Fascinating. Yeah, recently I know. <coughs> There is one uh, novel written by a Shanghai-based writer that is entirely based on the Shanghai dialect, mm. which won the big prize. And is that a rare thing in Very China? rare, very, very rare. Yeah, everything is Mandarin-based, 99%, I think. And your own background in Huangzhou, I'm sorry, I don't know yeah, the yeah, tone. Yeah, that sounds right, um, yeah, yeah. Is, it, uh, is that dialect close to Mandarin, or is it... No, no, very vast, uh, vastly different. different, which is why when I wrote my third novel, Lose a Wild History, I use a lot of, uh, uh, my much yeah. of the writing is based on the language and the word from my uh, birthplace. Very interesting. Um, and there's one final thing, I know that we're kind of running a little bit late. Um, I want to ask you about rivers. Um, okay. Rivers. And um, rivers and nature as a source for mm -hmm. poetic inspiration. Mm. If you look up um, Hangzhou on Google Earth, you see the Yangtze River sweeping through it like this and a great big sandbar mm -hmm. in the middle of the Yangtze River. Oh, you did this. Oh, yeah. I've never been to China, but mm -hmm. you can go anywhere on Google Earth now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I suddenly understood some things that you've said um, in your previous writings about how um, the rivers and kind of that riverine environment was an inspiration for your poetry and images from that still come out in your poetry many years That's later. That's right, yeah. And I, com I compare and contrast that to um, a poem you wrote a little while later, Responding to the Murray River, mm. um, which obviously would have looked very different. I'm just going to read a tiny little bit yeah. out of the Murray River poem. Where did I put it? That's all right. Maybe I didn't put it in here. Oh, no, here we are. Um, so the, the Murray in this poem that you wrote emerges from the monotonous kangaroo-coloured plain with its trees standing bare and lonely in the water looking like charred limbs, which is, you know, fabulously accurate description of the Murray, I think everyone would agree. But do you do you find now that having been in the Australian landscape for longer that you respond to it differently as a poet or 
do not really feel that it informs your I always, yes, uh, good question. I always think of the uh, differences, more differences uh, than similarities. Um, and I grew up uh, on the Yangtze. My early life was full of uh, the Yangtze because I went swimming on a daily basis in summer. Mm. And like I write uh, uh, about in uh, the English class, in summer, I was suntanned, but uh, in winter, my skin turned white again. You know, it's like that always. And um, when I arrived in Australia, I found that uh, its landscape was so uh, different. It's even uh, between Melbourne and Canberra. You know, the summer heat feels so different. Today, when I arrived, hot, three words, hot, dry, and windy. And it's the wind that really uh, hurts a little bit, yeah. you know. I wouldn't mind the dry, but it's windy, yeah. yeah. But that's not something you, you, you get in Melbourne. It's different. Uh, I noticed the differences, and then when I arrived, mm. I tried to put those in my poetry. Uh, also because I uh, read some early poetry in Chinese written by migrants, Chinese migrants from other countries, from Vietnam, from Cambodia, and I found that their image of Australia is very much like China. Why? Because the linguistic and, and the cultural baggage is very much wisdom. Oh. And when they write unconsciously, they are influenced by that. So how yeah. are you going to um, uh, do the portrait of landscape the way Sidney Nolan mm. and other Australian artists did? discarding the European baggage and uh, using the new eye, so mm. to speak, mm. to look at the, la uh, at the landscape and then turn that into a different kind of language in poetry and painting. That's what I always wanted to achieve in my writing. Uh, still aware of what uh, is there in China, but more as a difference yeah, and that's what I uh, have been uh, trying to do. Thanks. And by the way, that uh, that one you chose yes. was uh, self-translated from Chinese. Self -translated. Yes. That's what I did. Yeah. In the early days, when I was very much ashamed <laughs> of what <laughs> I did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, Still. No, <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Um, thank you so much for giving of yourself in all of those answers. Thank you for bearing. Pleasure. 